You're listening to the Acts, How the Gospel Changes the World series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. I'll tell you, listening to that song, I, I was in the junior church this morning um, in the toddler classroom, and so I didn't know what song Jenny sang this morning, and the words of that song fit perfectly with the lesson I'm going to be giving tonight, and so it's so encouraging to listen to that. You know you were created for a purpose. It was to glorify God. And that should be our prayer, that no matter what happens, no matter what's going on in our lives, God is king, God deserves our glory, no matter what. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. The, the lesson is going to be, once again, in the book of Acts. And if you've been with us, you've seen that we've been systematically going through the book of Acts. And, and so that means that I'm not picking and choosing which verses I talk about. We're going through verse at a time, and there are some verses that I'm just, some passages I'm really excited about getting to, some that just have a wonderful, obvious lesson that I can't wait to preach, and there are some times when I'm like, hey, I kind of don't really know what to do with that. Um, There are some times that you come to a, a passage and you're like, okay, what does that text teach us? How do we get a lesson from that? And, and if I'm completely honest with you, as I was studying this week, a thought that I heard Alistair Begg say one time came to my mind, and that was that every passage of Scripture is equally inspired, but not every passage is equally inspiring. And, and I think that's true sometimes. And I, I, as I was studying this week, I asked the question, what, what am I going to do with this? How does this apply to my life? How does this apply to our lives today in the 21st century. And I'm going to try and get, get into this in, a, in an interesting way, but um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in television shows recently, there's a trend going on where they have this, this one mystery. And the whole show is based on solving this one mystery. I think Lost was probably the show that coined or, or started doing this. And many other shows have tried and failed and... and the, the point is that it seems like there's a lot of shows that just, they have this one thing that you're working toward, and, and my question is always, well, what happens when you get there? I mean, how do you end it? And what, what ultimately happens with these shows is that they just go on rabbit trail after rabbit trail after rabbit trail, and, and you never really get to that end solution, and when you do get there, it's usually kind of depressing. Okay? It's usually not as exciting as you had imagined it to be, and many of you Lost fans will know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay? I wasn't a Lost fan. Um, But that's what I've heard, that many people were disappointed in the end. Well, if we were to label the last five chapters and the next couple to come, something, if we were to call it a television show, we'd probably call it something like Paul Goes to Rome. Because ever since, in chapter 19, Paul mentioned the fact that he desired to go to Rome, it feels like Luke is building up to this point where eventually he is going to end up in Rome. The problem is, Luke is taking a long time to get there, isn't he? And and if Luke was an actual writer of a television show, we might think that he's just not very original. Because so far what has happened since he's come to Jerusalem is he's gone through four different trials. He had the trial before the mob. He had the trial before the Sanhedrin. He had the trial before Felix. And then last, a couple weeks ago, we saw the trial before Festus. And so it's like every 
episode is just a new trial where the same charges are brought before Paul and they're always ludicrous charges and Paul always easily demonstrates that he's not guilty and the end result is always that he's left in prison to rot. He's just not making any, there's no forward movement toward Rome. Now we know he's going to go to Rome. We know he's desired that for a long time. We know God has promised that that will eventually happen. But we just don't know why Luke isn't moving forward in the story. Well, I have great news for you. In chapter 25, at the end of chapter 25 and in chapter 26, we get to see another trial. And the outcome is going to be the same thing. Okay, now at the end of last week's trial, we saw that, that Paul had used the, the Roman rite of provocatio, where he could say, I appeal to Caesar. And so we now know exactly how Paul is going to get to Rome, and it would make sense for us, if we were reading and writing this story, to just jump to Acts chapter 27, verse 1 where it says, and when he was determined that, that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and he got on a ship and he went to Italy. Because now we know he's going to Rome. And yet we have another very long, drawn-out trial ahead of us before that even happens. And so that's what we're in tonight. And, and to be honest with you, tonight we are going to just set up the trial. Now this is one of the most wonderful defenses, probably the most wonderful defense that Paul gives in the entire book of Acts of his salvation and of the gospel. It's... it's been called by theologians the defense of his life. Okay? It's the greatest defense that he gives. And so it's going to be an exciting passage of scripture for us. But tonight what I want to do, and what is interesting, what Luke does, is he spends a lot of time setting up for this trial. And so I want to look at why he did this, why he set it up. Because uh, if I'm being honest with you, I was, I was kind of joking about how Luke is a terrible writer. The truth is, Luke is a wonderful historian. And everything in this, I hope you've seen so far, in all four trials, there's been truths that have come out that are applicable to our lives. And tonight, it's no different. Tonight, what I hope we see is that Luke is using this language and this story to set up, and he's, he's showing this immense contrast between Paul, who is the humble servant of God, and King Agrippa, who is a pompous king. And we're going to see this contrast very clearly, and I hope from it, there are lessons that we can learn and walk away with tonight. I hope, I hope we leave here encouraged and challenged in our faith. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this night, Lord. I do thank you for this text, and God, it was a joy to be able to um, dig and learn and to have you show me so clearly here how um, there is a way that is your way and a way that is the world's way. And we see the, the contrast between Paul and Agrippa so clearly. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to um, just get a feel for the environment, for the demeanor of these men, for um, what they lived for, for their purpose. And I pray, God, that, that as we see the purpose of Paul and what he lived for, that we would be challenged to be the same kind of people, to live the same type of lives. Lord, you've called us to many different things, but you've called each one of us to use the life we have to bring you glory. And I pray you'd help us to see how we can do that better tonight. We love you, Lord. I need your help tonight. I pray that you would speak through your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Acts chapter 25, verses 1 to 12, we saw Paul appearing before Festus. Festus is the, the brand new Roman procurator. He took the place of Felix. We saw Felix in chapter 24 in that trial. And so now Festus is there, and the very first thing that the Jews bring up to Festus is this man, Paul, who they want to see killed. 
And so Festus deals with the situation, but Luke gives a very abbreviated version of this trial in verses 1 to 12. We see the charges brought. We see that the charges are kind of a joke, that there's, there's no evidence to substantiate them. There's no witnesses. And we see Paul defending himself very well there. And so it would make sense that Festus would let Paul go, except Festus is brand new to this position. And his goal is to make a good impression on the Jews. He doesn't want to make them angry because if he does, he might lose his position. Okay, back then they didn't have a democratic style election, but what they did have is if you couldn't keep your people under control, then they got somebody else that could. So Festus wants to make sure he can keep his people under control. He thinks by pleasing the Jews, that would be a good way of doing that. So he keeps Paul in prison. Because of this, and because Festus asks Paul if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and be tried once again by the Sanhedrin, Paul says, I've already proven a number of times that I am not guilty. Okay? It's very clear I'm not guilty. I am not going to go to Rome and be killed by, or go to Jerusalem and be killed by them. Instead, I appeal to Rome. And so let's begin our reading in chapter 25, verse 13, and then we will go to verse 22, and we'll really look closely, starting at verse 23. Chapter 25, verse 13 says, And after certain days, Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. So Agrippa is king. And he should have been, if he was older, he would have been king over all of Palestine. But because he was 17 when his father died, uh, Palestine was, was divided up. And it's now ruled by procurators. And he is given a, a very a much more northern area to rule, a much smaller area. Uh, he might have been a little bit upset about that. But he, he really could be called king of the Jews. Because even though the area that he rules is a Gentile area, Traditionally, all of the Herods, okay, so you got Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa I, they had all been the kings of the Jews because they, they were rulers over Palestine. And even though Herod Agrippa II is not ruler of Palestine, he is the one that was put in charge of the temple. So he has the ability to elect the next high priest or depose the current high priest. He has a lot of say in what happens in the temple and According to Rome, he is the expert in Judaism. So if there was a Jewish matter, you would bring it before Herod Agrippa. And so a very interesting situation that he's in. And, and so Agrippa and Bernice happen to come to meet Festus. And most likely they're coming to meet Festus because Festus is the new guy who's ruling part of his, what would be his territory. They're both rulers in different areas. And so this is kind of a political meeting. Verse 14. And when they had been there many days... Festus declared Paul's cause to the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix, about whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. To whom I answered, It is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die, before that he which is accused have the accusers face to face, and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. Therefore, when they were come hither without any delay on the morrow, I sat in the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth. Against whom, when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation of things that, that I supposed, but had certain questions against him of their own superstition and of one Jesus which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I doubted, and, and it's, he's saying I, I didn't understand, I doubted against, sorry, I doubted, of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. 
But when Paul appealed to be reserved into the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I, have, till I might send him to Caesar. What Festus is doing here is he's summarizing the events of the previous days to Agrippa. And he's explaining why Paul is now a prisoner who is headed to Rome. And, and when he gives this explanation, he definitely colors it in the best light possible for himself. Okay, and we've seen that happen many times. Here it, it very clearly happens. Because what he's kind of saying is, listen, it, all of the accusations that brought forth didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand them. I, I mean, you've got to feel a little bit bad for Festus, right? Because think about it. You have these Jews who adamantly want this man killed, and they bring forth the accusations, and they're talking about somebody rising from the dead like 20 years ago. And Festus has, I mean, that has nothing to do with Roman law, and he's in charge of Roman law, right? And, 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 but at the same time, he can't just dismiss the case because everybody's going to be upset with him if he does that. And so he's in this weird predicament. He doesn't know what to do. And he pretends like it was Paul's fault that he appealed to Caesar and that he just nicely asked him to go to Jerusalem. He did not give the background that while Paul had actually been tried to kill, be killed in Jerusalem a number of times, he'd already been in trial three times previous to the time that I sat him before trial. And so he, he's not giving all the facts, but I mean, it, it, it sounds very nice to Agrippa. It sounds like that Festus has done a wonderful job of being a Roman judge. And so now Agrippa says to Festus in verse 22, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, Thou shalt hear him. Agrippa is interested. He wants to know what's going on. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about Agrippa really quickly so that you get an idea of why he's interested. Okay? His great-grandfather was Herod the Great. If you remember, Herod the Great is the Herod, the king, who killed all of the babies in Bethlehem with the purpose of killing Jesus. And then his grandfather was Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. He earned the title of fox from Jesus. Jesus called him a fox. And he's the one that after Pontius Pilate tried Jesus, he tried to send him to Herod Antipas to be judged. And Herod Antipas said, no, I don't want anything to do with this. Send him back. And so he's connected with Jesus. And then his father, who is Herod the Great, sorry, Herod Agrippa I, is the one who killed the apostle James he had him beheaded, and then he tried to do the same thing to Peter, except Peter was miraculously led out of prison, and eventually he left to go to Caesarea. And in Acts chapter 12, we find that when he goes to Caesarea, and he's all upset because of what just kind of transpired with Peter, he goes there, and then he is worshipped as a, as a god by the people of Caesarea, and, and this, all of this is taking place in Caesarea. Okay, that's, that's where these Herods live. And so he goes kind of to where what became his hometown. He is worshipped as a king, as a god, and then he's killed by God because he accepts the worship. It says he, the Bible says he's eaten of worms and dies. And this is 15 years prior to this, and so this Herod Agrippa was his son, and he is the new king of the Jews. But... This Herod Agrippa would, would have a good understanding of Jesus, of all of these things, because he'd kind of been around it, and a lot, it had affected his whole life. So in chapter 25, verse 23, we're going to see this set up for the trial. It says, And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice with great pomp. Do you remember who Bernice was? Bernice is Agrippa's sister and lover. Yeah, it was weird. 
It was, it was gross. Uh, the truth is, Bernice eventually tried to marry the emperor Titus, and when she went to marry the emperor, the Roman, the pagan Romans were so disgusted by Bernice's previous lifestyle with her brother that they wouldn't let Titus get married to her, so Titus sent her away. I mean, this is, so the pagan world understands what they're doing is wicked and wrong. But this is, this is who this man, Herod Agrippa, is. He's living with his sister. Agrippa and Bernice come with great pomp. The word pomp is fantasia. It's Greek word fantasia, and it's where we get our word fantasy. The idea is that it's just this ostentatious, prestigious, I mean, he walks in and, and there's a parade behind him, and there's so, they're just building him up. Okay, he would be wearing these wonderful purple robes, uh, royal robes, and then Festus would walk behind him in beautiful scarlet robes. It was this huge show, this production that they put on as he walked in. So he walked in with great pomp and was entered into the place of hearing with the chief captains. So the chief captains would be the Kiliarchs. They would be the Roman soldiers. They, they were rulers of a thousand men, and there would have been at least five of them in Centuria. And principal men of the city, so these are the civic rulers, at Festus' commandment, Paul was brought in. I, I want you to visualize the scene. Okay, so you have the king come in, and he's wearing beautiful purple robes. You have Festus come in, he's wearing beautiful red robes. And then you have these five men who are one of the top commanders in the Roman army, leaders of a thousand men. Then you have all the important men in the city. You have this this array of important, well-dressed, smart, educated, powerful men. And then Bernice beside Agrippa. And then you have Paul when Festus says, okay, bring in the prisoner. And Paul walks in and he's wearing prison robes that are dirty and uncomfortable, kind of disgusting, probably not washed in, in a long time. It probably smells a little bit. Uh, from tradition, we, we learn that Paul was likely not a very big man, okay, a small guy. Um, they say that he was balding. I think we learn in other places of Scripture that he was a little bit blind. And so he kind of hobbles in this, this small man wearing terrible clothes among all of these brilliant, powerful men. It, it would be, it would be ter- intimidating. It would be terrifying. If you were somebody like Paul walking in like this, and it was designed to be that way. They, they were designing this setup so that they looked as good as they possibly could and then they brought the prisoner in as, they, as if they were nothing. And that's the situation Paul walks into here. Verse 24. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men which are here present with us, you see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me both at Jerusalem and also here crying that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death and that he himself had peeled into Augustus, I have determined to send him. And so Agrippa announces the prisoner, sorry, Festus announced the prisoner, he announces the charges. He says, so far, I mean, I tried him. There was nothing worthy of death. I found him innocent. But for some reason, Paul the wacko appealed to, to Rome. And he, again, he's painting himself in a good light and he's saying, I don't understand why Paul did what he did. Well, he, he did what he did because you didn't let him off of charges he was clearly not guilty of. So he announces the prisoner, verse 26, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord, wherefore I have brought him forth before you. And so what he's saying here is, I have to send Paul to Rome 
because he appealed to Rome, and I have to present him before Caesar, but you by law cannot present a prisoner before Caesar unless you have an accusation. So far, he has no accusation that makes any sense. And so he's saying, I have to send him there. I'm in a predicament because I have nothing to accuse him of. Wherefore, I have brought him forth before you, and especially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write. Agrippa, I'm hoping that you can figure out what I can charge him with, because so far he's a prisoner going to Rome with no charges. So he's asking for Agrippa's help. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner, and not withal to signify the crimes laid against him. Yeah, that, that is unreasonable, isn't it? It's kind of unreasonable that you, you didn't call him not guilty when he was clearly not guilty. I mean, all of this is unreasonable, and it's his fault that it's unreasonable. I'm just going to read the first two verses of chapter 26. It says, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee touching all the things where I'm accused of the Jews. And so this is how Luke decides to set up this wonderful trial that's going to take place. What I want to do tonight is I want to look at two profiles. We're going to look at the profile of the king and then a profile of the criminal. And I hope from these two profiles we can learn something. So we look at the profile of the king. Now, when you think of a profile, I don't know what you think of, but I think of an outline or a sketch of something. And so you don't get all the details, but you get a really quick sketch, a quick idea of what it's like. And uh, nowadays, we have many different profiles available to us. In fact, you've probably made a number of profiles of yourself. If you're involved with any social media, then you make a profile if you want to have a Facebook account, right? You, you you profile your relationship, you profile your religious beliefs, you profile your education, you profile all of this information about yourself, so it's just like a snapshot of who you are. I think that the profiles that are done for Twitter are actually more interesting because there you get 160 characters to sum up who you are, right? You've got to give a profile. And so there, you don't decide, you don't get a list of categories and have to answer each question, you have to decide what you want the world to know about you in 160 characters. Well, I was thinking about this and, and the idea of making a profile for Agrippa, and I thought, I wonder what his profile would look like on something like Twitter. It might say something like, wealthy king of Galilee and Priya, uh, servant of Rome, son, grandson, and great-grandson of evil men, father was eaten by worms, living with my sister and mistress, Bernice, and I'm a pompous, and then you'd run out of characters. And so the profile would look something like that, okay? It's not a very... Now, he would probably color it a little bit differently, but the truth is, as we look back on this man, historically, that is what we know of him, right? And so there are many times we understand this. We go on our profiles, and we make ourselves sound so wonderful and interesting, and the truth is, that is not how history is going to see us. Okay, this is how history sees Agrippa. This would be his profile. We see, even in these verses here, that he's a man who considers himself of great importance. Doesn't he? I mean, look at this. He comes in with great pomp. He, he has this ceremonial parade just so he can try one man. 
None of it all makes sense. It's all designed to make himself look good. He's surrounded by the elite, and all of the elite call him king. He is viewed by Rome as the expert on Judaism, and he lives a life with everybody thinking he's wonderful and he believes it all. We also see in his life, very quickly, that he pursues pleasure rather than righteousness. Now, Herod is a Jew. He was officially the ruler of the, the temple. And so he dealt a lot with the Jews. He understood what he was doing with his sister was clearly wrong. But he decided to p- pursue himself, what he wanted, pr- pursue pleasure, pursue self-indulgence, more than pursue truth and righteousness. So he was a man who was not considered with what God said. He was considered with what would make him happy at the time. And he's a man who rejected God's grace already and God's warnings to him. When you look at some of these men in Scripture, isn't it clear that somebody like Herod Agrippa, whose father was killed by God because he was accepting worship that belonged to God, would know better? But isn't it amazing that if, if we were to step back into Acts chapter 12 and look at the parade that Herod Agrippa I had, it would look so similar to this, with people thinking he was so impressive. Now the difference here is, it doesn't clearly say that he accepted worship that belonged to God, but he is still promoting himself so much. He's still receiving glory from other people, from men. When we look at this man, we see somebody who, who should have known better. He had God's warnings. He knew the truth. He, he knew what the Old Testament said. Uh, he knew about Jesus. He, he knew those things, and he just chose already to reject him, them. He, he had chosen already to reject God's grace, and, and this is how wonderful God's grace is. Because even though he'd already known some of those things and rejected, we are about to see one of the greatest presentations of the gospel giving to, given to this man and his sister as they sit there. Isn't that wonderful? That God decided that Agrippa was worth giving the gospel to once more. So we see the profile of the king. A man who thinks himself important, a man who pursues pleasure, and a man who has already rejected the grace of God. This is who we're dealing with, with Agrippa. And then we see the profile of the criminal. Let's, let's shift our attention to Paul for a second. I wonder if Paul had a Twitter profile, what it would say. Maybe he would say something like he did at the start of the book of Romans, when he says, I'm Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. Maybe something simple like that. Or maybe he would take the bullet form approach, where you just get as much information in as possible as you can. And so maybe he'd say something like, I'm Paul, a servant of God, adopted, sealed by the Spirit, forgiven, the least of all saints accepted in the beloved, more than a conqueror. For me, death is gain. I'm content. I rejoice in tribulation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And as you might have guessed, I'm already way beyond the 160 character limit. But I, I wonder if, you could, if Paul would just try and fit as much about the gospel, about who he is, and about how thankful he is in that short period of time. I mean, I guess all of this is speculation, and it doesn't really matter. But I think we can imagine what Paul's profile would look like. And as we look back at Paul through history, though at one point he was a wicked, terrible criminal, don't we look at him as somebody who was just a champion of the faith? Paul didn't write his Facebook profile or his Twitter profile by hand, but we know what what he would say, don't we? 
I think that that's just a, a little lesson for us in the fact that what we live should match what we think we would say about ourselves now. We don't want it to be that 100 or 200 or 2,000 years from now, somebody looks back at our life and they have nothing good to say about the gospel. Okay? We would write our profile differently, but how are we writing our profile with our lives? Well, Paul wrote a good one. That's why we say so many good things about him. So Paul is here, and he's brought into the courtroom in the most humbling way possible. He is humiliated. He isn't permitted to see the show. He's chained up. Okay, so he comes in there, and, and so they're all sitting around, waiting for him to talk, and he's there in chains, shackled up, with dirty robes on. I can imagine them laughing as he stumbled to the center of the room. And I imagine them, everybody, just kind of jerking and sneering and, and waiting for him to talk just so they could find something else to make fun of him. Of. I mean, I don't think this would be a pleasant scenario for anybody to walk into. And when we look at Paul, this is what we see. We see, first of all, that he was willing to be humiliated for the sake of the gospel. He was willing to be humiliated for the sake of the gospel. Uh, in this case, Paul did not legally have to answer for himself. He had already appealed to Caesar, and so Paul could legally, now they might have beaten him, who knows what would have happened to him, but, but legally he could say, no, my next trial is before Caesar, I don't want to see King Agrippa. And officially they would have to accept that. But Paul was willing to be humiliated. Do you know that he walked into this room, and he wasn't fighting it, he went, knowing that it would mean humiliation for him, knowing that, that there would be a pompous king looking down on him and everybody, all of the officials, uh, uh, sneering at him. He walks into this situation on purpose, knowing it's going to be bad for him because he knows it will be good for the sake of the gospel. Paul saw this as an opportunity to share the gospel, and, and what we're going to see in the next chapter is that his defense of himself is really a presentation of the gospel. He spends little or no time defending himself. It's all about, this is who Jesus is, this is how wonderful he is, this is why you should know him too. So he's willing to be humiliated. Number two, he is confident in the power of the gospel. We know in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believes. And it's very easy for us and for him to say that, Right? It's very easy to say good things. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And if I was to ask you today, you'd probably say, no, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But here, Paul is proving it. I can almost guarantee that every prisoner that would walk in that room would walk in with their head down, not looking around, terrified and scared. And, and I don't know what you picture when Paul walks in the room, but I picture him walking in the room with his terrible clothes and with all of these fancy people around him, with his head up, confident that he has something that they need. And when you look at his speech, he's not scared. He's not worried about the outcome. He's not worried about what they're going to think of him. He is excited to share the love of Christ with them. He is confident. In fact, even we read, the first thing he does is he puts up his hand. It's like, listen, I'm talking now. I want you to pay attention. He's confident. And so Paul is confident in the power of the gospel. The third thing we see in Paul is that he had joy and hope in the gospel that could not be stolen. There was joy that he had, there was hope that he had, and they couldn't take it from him. And they tried everything they could, right? I mean, left him to rot in prison for two years for no reason. And then they bring him out, and it seems like this is his way out, and all of a sudden he's back in prison 
waiting another trial and then another trial. And it goes on and on. It seems like it doesn't end for Paul. And yet they could not take his joy. They couldn't take his hope. Isn't it interesting that as he begins his speech, the first thing he says is, I think myself happy. (laughs) I'm happy. I'm blessed. I'm glad. This is a good thing for me. I'm excited about the opportunity to defend myself and ultimately to give the gospel to you. Would we be happy in a terrible circumstance like that? Do you know that the word he uses for happy is makar? Sorry, it's makarios, and makar meant, it, meant blessed or fortunate. Makarios is like the, the extended version of that. And so he, what he's, he's using a very emphatic word. He's saying, I'm supremely blessed to be in this situation. And everybody in the room would go, what? Why? And Paul knows it's because he has a hope that they can't take away, and he's excited to be able to share the, that hope with somebody else. Now, Paul, we see, was in a very unique situation, right? We do not expect to be in a situation like Paul's. Okay? In fact, I think this situation where he's standing trial before a king and a procurator at the same time, but it's not even a real trial, and he doesn't even have to be there, but all the city officials and all the Kiliarchs are there, I think that situation probably never happened again in history and never before it. It's very unique. But as I thought about Paul standing in the midst of all of those people who thought of themselves as important and looked down on Paul, I realized that that situation has occurred for Christians since Christ died on the cross. In fact, Christ's death was that situation, wasn't it? When he was brought in first before the Sanhedrin and they all looked down at him and beat him and, and they were all nicely dressed and of great importance and they put him in the middle and tried to make him look stupid. And, and Christ stood there and took it. And then he's brought before Pontius Pilate and, and he knew that the only power that Pilate has was, Pilate, was power that he had given him. And yet he submitted himself and he answered his questions. And, and the whole way through, he was this humble servant. We see it in Jesus. We see it here in Paul. And we saw it. We see it throughout history. I was thinking about 20 years from this point, the Roman Colosseum is built. Seats 50 to 80,000 people. And they would pack out the Colosseum so that they could see Christians marched in there with wild animals and with gladiators and with many different ways of killing them. And those Christians would be in the same situation where everybody else is looking down on them and making fun of them. And they can either cower or they can confidently stand for their faith. And they did. See, this is, this is not something that is... Though Paul's situation is unique, there are so many principles here about how Paul's demeanor and how he acted that are so relevant for us. It teaches us that in a world where people look down on us, in a world where we might be a little bit ostracized or humiliated, where people might not think of us as as important because of our faith, we still need to stand and stand confidently that there's something that they can't take from us. It's our hope. It's our joy in the gospel. That we have something that they need and they don't know they need it. Right? They think that we're crazy. In fact, Festus tells Paul he's crazy in the next chapter. All of this learning has made you mad. And Paul says, no, I'm not mad. This is truth and you need it. That should be us in this world. We should be willing to stand and willing to be humiliated and and remain confident in the gospel, confident in the power of the gospel, and confident in in our hope. And if we do this, we'll be living this life the way we're supposed to. 
We are nearly 2,000 years removed from this passage. But there are still people like King Agrippa. And there are still believers like Paul around the world that are being persecuted for their faith and they're standing strong. We live in in an interesting country because it's a country that does not openly persecute, not physically persecute, and yet at the same time, it is a country that it seems to just constantly push down Christianity. And it's like, just be quiet. That's the message. We just don't want to hear what you have to say. And we need to decide, while there's a gun that's not to our head, if we're going to still live for Christ. Because I think that there are times when, when, when persecution comes and when the gun is to our head, we get serious. But maybe when the gun's not to our head, it's just easy to not be serious. I don't think Jesus would say, yeah, well, you only need to live for me when the gun is to your head. See, Paul's got the gun to his head. But we still live in a world that surrounds us and, and would like to humiliate us in, in, in different ways, but in ways for our faith. So do we stand? Are we confident? Do we know that the hope that we have is something that other people need? There isn't a week that goes by that I read the book of Acts and I read about Paul and I'm not convicted. Am I ashamed of the gospel? I would say no. I would say absolutely not. But then, do you see it all the time in my life? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I think there are times that I could be more confident, be more willing to be humiliated for the sake of the gospel. Everyone else here is wallowing in their pleasure and their preeminence. And here we have Paul joyfully awaiting his next attempt to share the love of Christ. And that's what his life was about. He had a purpose. So may God give us the courage and the compassion to live like Paul. May we be willing to be humiliated for the sake of the gospel. May we be confident in the the power of the gospel. And may we remember that we have a joy and a hope that cannot be taken.